You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It is billed as an inaugural event celebrating Hawaiian culture in a town some refer to as the Ninth Island, Las Vegas. It's where many Hawaii residents go to gamble and unwind. We talked to Kohio Lewis, CEO of the Nonprofit Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, which kicks off its first Western Region Convention next week. It's expected to draw more than 1,000 people. It is the first time that the council has taken this convention on the road. Vegas is actually the third largest concentration of Native Hawaiians, according to the U.S. Census. And Honolulu is no longer the number one. It's now Los Angeles. It's Los Angeles, Honolulu, and then Las Vegas. So that's why Las Vegas is a gathering place. It's central to all of the western states where our community resides. So I think it's a safe bet, though. You know, we've been analyzing this for a while. We've been talking about it for a while, about how our community is migrating. It's an unfortunate reality. But it is what it is, and we have to represent their collective voices as well. They're part of the fabric of Hawaii, and so you know we're going to bring Hawaii to them. We often hear about how Hawaii residents move to Henderson because the housing is so cheap relative to living in the islands. You know, we hear about how the counties over there are uh, wooing our police officers, you know, because the pay is so much better. And then so many people go there to gamble you know, to watch the shows, but why Vegas versus Los Angeles? Well, this is the first, it's inaugural. We plan to move it around to different states in the years ahead. But Vegas, because that is the fastest growing population of Native Hawaiians. So when you look in terms of where Hawaiians are moving, Vegas is moving very quickly. And so that's one of the reasons. The other reason, it's just a gathering place. It's where we love to vacation. It's where Hawaii people I mean, they, they call it the Ninth Island. I don't know. If I, I like to call it that. But, you know, it, it has that term for a reason. It's someplace we all identify with. What's on the lineup as far as uh, topics that you plan to address during this gathering? You know, it's really important to recognize is that these members of our community that have been moving away from our islands, they're part of our culture. They're part of who we are as a community. Whenever someone moves away from Hawaii, we lose a piece of that fabric that makes Hawaii unique, that makes Hawaii special. And we're now in the second, third generation. So it's not just the first generation person moved, it's their kids. And they don't understand and connect with Hawaii the way that their parents did. And that means we're going to lose that culture. So this is the beginning. I think what you are seeing is is an organization that's becoming a national intermediary to support our voices, our community, our culture at a national level. You are uh, showcasing the pop-up makeke products, all things made in Hawaii, and I think that's so important. I mean, our creativity is just breaking through the the ceilings. You know, we're uh, going to places, you know, we haven't been, you know, between our designers going to, you know, Fashion Week, uh, you know, just mm-hmm. to, to broadening our reach so that, you know, Hawaii products are enjoyed across the globe. Yep. So we're taking Papa Makeke with us. Over 10,000 Hawaii products are being shipped. They're in a container on their way to Vegas right now. In addition to Papa Makeke, we're going to have cultural workshops. So we're going to have hula workshops. You know, and that's the basis of some of the brand of the products, right? It's hula, it's mele. And so you're going to see the mele workshops, the hula workshops. We're also featuring Josh Tatofi. He's, he's headlining an evening show. There's a lot of economic development discussions going to happen, professional development for for-profit, non-profit businesses. We want our community to thrive. We understand that they're not here in Hawaii right now. Our hope is that they can come home. But if we can support them, build their capacity on the continent, maybe they have a better shot at that. For the people that have been priced out of paradise and have had to move elsewhere, you want to be able to what empower them so they can come back home if they choose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the goal here is come back to Hawaii. This is your homeland. This is your ancestral land. This is where your pico is. And so we want them to come home. So if we can support them, hopefully they can come home at some point in their in their future. You're also talking about intellectual property. And, mm-hmm. and that's something I know that has whetted many appetites about what belongs to Hawaii. Intellectual property is a big issue. You know, we see a lot of people mischaracterizing Hawaiian words, misusing it. They're branding things Hawaiian that's really not Hawaiian. They branded Hawaii, and it's not Hawaii. You know, a perfect example is luau's. You know, everybody thinks there's a big party with these Polynesian. It's more of a Polynesian show and, than it is a Hawaiian luau. 
So we have to find that authentic space because we're going to lose our culture otherwise. So it, it's making sure that the Hawaiians that move away understand that culture, that, that deeper connection to Hawaii, so that you know that they can represent it well. So this is a convention about authenticity. It's about being authentic. It's also about identity. It's about plotting the course of our future as a people, as a community. So where do you see this convention going? Well, I think what you're seeing is an emergence of a, a national voice, a national gathering for Native Hawaiians. It's no longer just Hawaii. It's now, no matter where you live, let's be one collective community and let's plot a course forward together. This convention is drawing, what, more than a 1,000 people. Uh, how often do you plan to take this on the road? So we're going to keep our convention in Hawaii, which we've had for the last 22 years. We're going to keep that, but we're adding a second convention every year. And that convention is going to move around the United States. We're looking at Seattle next year, having the convention there. But yes, the, the attendance is actually well over 1,000 right now for the biggest convention. Last year, Hawaii's convention, we had about 1,700. When you look back at when this organization started and how much more muscle, political muscle you have uh, in the marketplace and just kind of on the map. What are you proudest of? Well, there's a lot. I, get, I You know, I'm, I don't really think about it in that way. I, I see it more as a responsibility as a Hawaiian. I mean, I have this amazing vehicle that was created. I get to drive it. But if there's one thing that I could put my finger on that I think stands out from the others, it's probably our workforce development. Nobody really hears about it, but we've helped hundreds, if not thousands, of people get good-paying jobs in Hawaii so that they have a shot at staying home. And so I think that's where CNHA's growth started. Nobody really knows that story, but it was the first program I launched. It was our workforce development program, and it was to help raise income for Hawaiians so they had a better shot at staying home. The program's been very successful. So it's not the pop-up makeke. It's not necessarily the rental assistance program. It's not tourism. It's been helping people get good-paying jobs. It's been very rewarding for me because that's the basis of stability. You talk about tourism. The council, you know, just got the award for management. Um, I don't know. How do you see this convention in helping with that goal? Well, that's an audience. That's a tourism audience, right? I mean, you, Native Hawaiians are always going to come back home to visit. And I also think they're stewards, they're ambassadors of Hawaii's culture, of our spirit of aloha. And so I think they're an extension of Hawaii and therefore a marketing tool for Hawaii. You are also including Sasha Colby in your lineup on the culture side. And I had the opportunity to see the uh, show Mahu, uh, Patrick Makuakane, yeah. put on here recently. And it was just wonderful to yeah. just elevate some of the wonderful talent that we have here in the islands in that context. You know, when the nation is going in the opposite direction, banning Mahu drag shows, they're banning drag shows across the nation. And so we're bringing this drag show Mahu Magic to Las Vegas to show them that this is part of our culture. So we're engaging in national conversations by way of this. So I'm excited. I'm excited to share about what Mahu means in our community, in our culture. It's a controversial topic, but we never run away from hard conversations. We run towards them. You know, I saw a breakout session, what, Hawaiian Soul? Another interesting conversation that's, that's going on in Hawaii is business leaders, Native Hawaiians and non-Hawaiians have come together. And we are discussing what Hawaii soul looks like and for the future. You know, where does it look like as a collective, not just Hawaiians, not just non-Hawaiians, not just business sector or government. How do we collectively rediscover that soul, that sweet spot, that thing that we all love about Hawaii, and how do we water that? So that conversation has been going on in Hawaii. We're taking it to the continent as well. That was Kohio Lewis, CEO of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. He was talking about its upcoming convention in Las Vegas, which is expected to cover issues related to intellectual property and political power while celebrating Hawaiian culture and creativity. Our foster care program is hurting. That's the subject of today's reality chat. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us online today. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. 
you know, this story, it's hard to read these stories, you know, when you hear what's going on, but they're very important stories to our community. Yeah, so what's what's happening is essentially that the Hawaii Children uh, or Child Welfare Office is um, finding itself unable to make monthly visits to children in foster care. Um, legally, they're required to visit the kids every month to make sure that they're okay. And if there's anything that's not okay going on in the home, you know, that they build that rapport so that the kids feel safe to, to say something. Um, and as my story shows, there's one recent example of a foster dad that um, was allegedly sexually abusing um, two brothers that were in his care. And um, CWS apparently failed to detect it. And that foster father is now facing criminal charges. And we're just hearing about this now? Yeah. So this happened um, allegedly almost 10 years ago now. Um, and there's two criminal cases going on now. Um, CWS you know, declines to talk about specific cases, but um, they did acknowledge that there are some systemic problems uh, in the department where they're unable to make those visits, but uh, they're hoping some new funding from the legislature this year will, will be able to help. We often hear about the heavy caseloads that the social workers have to deal with because there aren't enough workers out there to check up on these children. Right. So... The caseloads um, on each island are higher than is recommended by experts. Um, generally, experts are saying that you shouldn't really have more than 15 to 20 or so. Um, statewide, it is higher than that. On Maui in particular, um, there was an average caseload of 44 at the last count in the uh, most recent data. Um, so the caseworkers are juggling a lot. Um, there's also more foster children in the system than there were 10 years ago, and they're staying in the system longer. Um, so it's just hard for them to keep up. Um, but at the same time, it is their responsibility. And, you know, sometimes bad things happen on their watch. And so state lawmakers are hoping they can, you know, step it up. And they were calling this a crisis situation. So talk about the funding that might be available going forward. Yeah, so there's a new $2.7 million uh, set of funds going to CWS this year um, in the state budget. Um, also, the governor has on his desk a proposal to create a working group that would investigate the root causes of failures in the child welfare system and hopefully uh, recommend some solutions as to what we can do going forward. Um, and, you know, certainly everyone hopes that will make the difference. And these children, they're often in foster care for a while. Yeah, the average is 18 months now, which is longer than it used to be. Um, so that's one of the, the contributing factors of, you know, the, the rise of the total number of foster children in the system. Um, as of 2021, there were over 2,500 kids in foster care in Hawaii. Um, and the average per month is about 1,500. Well, hopefully the uh, funding will help uh, attract new people into this field uh, where the need is is great and, uh, you know, that they can uh, do a better job of making those visits to prevent, uh, you know, some of these abuse cases from happening. Right. Um, you know, it is tough for DHS to recruit. That was one thing that the spokeswoman, um, Amanda Stevens, told me is that, you know, in addition to all the other challenges, the public scrutiny that comes with the job is tough and makes it harder for them to recruit. So it's kind of a vicious cycle there. Um, and, you know, overall in child abuse, it's mainly biological parents that are the perpetrators. But um, there are about a dozen cases per year of foster parents being accused of abuse. So um, I think everyone wants that to be zero. Right. I mean, when we hear the stories of Peter Kemma and Ariel, you know, the one we had Sellers, here in Oahu. Yes. yes. They're heartbreaking cases, but very important to shine the light on, on the system and what we can do to help improve things for these children. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking to Christina Jedra for today's Reality Check. You can read her story on this issue at civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the outrigger Waikiki, presenting R&B group The Spinners, performing songs such as I'll Be Around in two sets nightly, June 16th to the 18th. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. There are a whole lot of things that make making a good living in this country difficult, and the black working class often feels those things first. We have to think in our policies and in our approach to our humanity, uh, how do we do better? I'm Kyle Rizdal, the black working class in American labor history, coming up next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Queens Island Urgent Care, treating non-life-threatening illnesses and injuries at six locations across Oahu. Walk-ins welcome. Learn more at queens.org. Ukulele, the jumping flea, has long been a thread in Hawaiian culture. Today, HBR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us to talk about an effort to restore treasures of our musical history. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us about the ukulele, because it's a wonderful little instrument. It is, and it has a lot of historical ties to Hawaii, but also Portugal. And there are these efforts that are underway to record these pre-1900s uh, instruments and store the sounds in the Hawaii State Archives. And these are pre-1900s. These aren't your modern-day ukulele that we know today. These are made from different woods back then. Some of them are actually made from uh, Hawaii's koa uh, to kind of make it more close to home. And Sean Yakovone is the owner of Ukulele Friend. It's a retailer's uh, shop and showroom in Kaimuki, and they sell handcrafted vintage to modern ukulele. Uh, but he started his collection of pre-1900s ukulele back in 2000. He was, I believe he was a student in Japan at the time. He just had this fascination for it. He's not a musician. He's not a handcrafter, but he just has his appreciation of the history and to tell the, his- the history and the historical context of ukulele and um, battle these misconceptions of it that it's an easy instrument to play when it's an underestimated instrument to play. Yeah, I mean, I have one, but I don't play it very well. <laughs> I just love to look <laughs> at it. <laughs> it's a beautiful-looking instrument, too. It's very similar to a full-size guitar, but a smaller version. you got the soprano, you got the tenor, and um, it's going to be interesting what's going to happen with this, this project going on. And um, that idea and the concept of this project to archive the sounds of it, it will be made available to the public. Uh, but it came, the concept and the idea came in 2014 when Sean was in a recording studio in his home studio in Kaneohe and him and his friends were talking about the differences of the modern day ukulele to the pre-1900s and how different they sound. What they sound, what the ukulele sounded like back in the 1800s, no one really knows. There wasn't really anything recorded back then. So it's only like a guessment. We don't even know the tuning. Um, it'd be nice to know, but you already like know the tuning now. But um, right now, the first phase of the project was to collect as much pre-1900 ukulele. That's Sean's uh, first phase. And why pre-1900s ukuleles? Here's what Sean had to say. Now, to give you an idea of how rare these instruments are, to have any singular piece from pre-1900s is really special. But for me, it's even more special because the educational opportunities that exist. When you have one piece, you can learn about one instrument. When you have three pieces, you can begin to compare. But when you have 10 or 15 or 20, you really can learn or you can educate. You can understand what's happening in terms of the evolution, the changing of the shape, the weight, the materials used, bracing. Comparatively, it opens a whole new world of education. Now, Sean is waiting for this professional studio to open up. It's here on Oahu, and it's called Line Studio at Washington Middle School. So it finished, uh, the, the building for that studio finished earlier this year, but they're waiting for more professional audio equipment to actually start the recording, and that's going to happen. I talked to the professional uh, director of that studio. He said he hopes it will fully open by next year, but for Sean, he's a little bit more optimistic. He was hoping to start recording by this year and just get the ball rolling on this project. And so, um, uh, gosh, I mean, will, will these ukulele be assembled in one place? 
they're hoping to have it maybe uh, like the ultimate goal of this project is to have this either Hawaiian music museum with a ukulele component, the physical ukulele. So you have the modern day and the pre 1900s and they're all playable. Um, or another is to have a standalone ukulele museum. And um, uh, hopefully that would be, uh, that will have the ball rolling on that one. Yeah, I mean, lots of people know, you know, its roots uh, in Portugal, you know, the jumping flea, right? And and uh, so we appreciate, you know, that part of uh, the culture and how it relates to Hawaii history. It has a, the ukulele has a very interesting history. Even I used to play the ukulele when I was younger, but when I started working more, it kind of fell off. I, w- I regret it a lot, but... Um, I also had this misconception. I thought ukulele originated in Hawaii when that's not actually true. So in 1879, three Portuguese woodworkers came to Hawaii on the Ravens or this uh, British carrier. And uh, these were the early builders. They were Augusto Diaz, Manuel Nunes, and Jose dos Espirito Santo. And they all worked in the plantation fields, which is why they were here in Hawaii. And these woodworkers opened up their shop in what's now known as the downtown Chinatown area. And this was around... 1884, 1885, and 1886. They're all, they all open up separately. Um, and what's also interesting is like, even though the Portuguese played ukulele, I don't, I'm not sure what the strumming patterns were like um, for that music, but King Kalakal was actually interested in ukulele and very interested in music culture, so he picked it up. And the native, the native wines here made it their own, their own style. Um, and there are two parent instruments to the ukulele that came from the island of Madeira in Portugal. So one parent instrument is called the Madeira Machete. It's basically the size of this uh, soprano ukulele, and its tuning back then, according to Sean, was DGBD, and that's considered the fa- father instrument, what we now know as the ukulele. Um, and the others look similar to a tenor or modern-day ukulele, and that's five strings. Uh, so those five strings are not paired in any particular order, but they're, um, this is what we, the tuning that we now know as GCEA, or the acronym for Good Cooks Eat Anything. Oh, is that like my dog has fleas? That- <laughs> Basically, <laughs> that's how I remember these chords. And um, that's actually where the original tuning come from. But if you have the ones with the five strings on this, uh, this parent instrument, the fifth string would be a D. Uh, so there's this unique culture here uh, about the ukulele in Hawaii, and even comparing how to build it. As I interviewed Sean, he said there was more flexibility to building the ukulele. And even now, uh, we still can see the different woods and the different texture and all of that. And um, it, it's a beautiful thing to see now, and I have this new appreciation for it. Yeah, a lot of people don't give it much credit, I guess, you know, for its rich history. They also think it's a very easy instrument to play, and that's when I got to interview this musician, actually this Monday at uh, the Kaimuki shop. His name is uh, Keikoa Woodward. Um, he actually learned how to play the ukulele by ear. It, he wasn't traditionally taught. And normally when you have you play the ukulele, your, uh, your first chord that you learn is a C. And a C is basically one finger, one string, one fret. Um, I think it's on the second or third fret. Uh, that was the easier one, but it's actually a a D minor. Um, and so, as the ukulele became more popular, you watch YouTube videos, and you know people will say like, "Oh, this is an easy instrument to play." Well, Kekoa Woodward said it's an underestimated instrument. And here's what we ha- here's what he had to say on why mastering the instrument and weaving these chords uh, together are challenging. I think the the part that makes it a little bit more challenging is that. There, there are songs that are learned that were simple, but then when you add in like diminished chords, it just adds a little bit of color. And I think that's what I've learned how to do with this instrument. Um, you know, that made a big difference. I think that was one of the more complex things is when I would hear some of these recordings was, okay, I want to make it sound like that, but all I know is this and that. And here's another example of Keiko weaving these chords together by a very simple song called My Yellow Ginger Lay. Beautiful. I love that song. 
<laughs> well, we'll have to uh, brush up on our ukulele skills. <laughs> but thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you for having me. We've been talking to HBR's Cassie Ordonio about a project to restore ukuleles. You can uh, read more about the story on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. is declared Make Music Day. It's an opportunity for folks across the world to celebrate and experience the joy of playing music. It started in 1982 in France and imagined as a new kind of music festival, a day where anyone and everyone would be invited to join. Or as Nalani Jenkins says, all kind people, all kind places, all kind music, all on one day. Jenkins is the president of Make Music Day Hawaii. You may know her as one of the members of the popular Hawaiian music group, Naleo Pilimehana. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with her in our studio to talk about making music in Hawaii. It seems like opportunities to play music have been impacted recently by the pandemic. What do you feel the local landscape looks like for musicians today? Yeah, you're right. It's changed. I think it was changing even before COVID, you know, Mm -hmm. but live music was something that like in the 40s and 50s, Hawaii was just hitting the map of uh, like the after the war and people were like, oh, yeah, you go to Waikiki and there's music everywhere. And it was live music. Right. As technology changed, it became less and less live music. And, you know, there was canned music. There were DJs. There were other things. And then you hit a bump in the road like the pandemic where everybody's isolated and tourism is, you know, very reduced. And musicians in Hawaii found themselves kind of out of luck. You know, the the whole digital movement in music has changed, too. And so people like us for Naleo, you could make CDs and you could make a living off of that. Now it's all about live gigs. That's like 95% of the way a musician supports themselves and their families. And that was basically taken away you know you know almost a blink of an eye and i know the industry has changed as well too i think snoop dogg of all people just had a rant that i saw on the internet about streaming and who's making all the money off of streaming Mm -hmm. is streaming and the internet has had one of the biggest impacts on the music industry Yeah. yeah yeah i mean i remember it vividly because our very first music we recorded was all analog there was no itunes And so it was all about if you made records, you sold them, that typical brick-and-mortar kind of stuff. Once digital came in, it changed everything. And it made some music more accessible worldwide, and that was sort of the feeling. It's like, oh, great, Hawaiian music can be everywhere, and people can just buy it online. What it really did is it changed it from a CD or album market to a singles market. And so if you like music, you like the group, you go buy the single. It shut music stores down. Right. We don't have any Borders record stores or Tower Records anymore. Shut all the brick and mortar retailers down and sort of left the artists kind of scratching their head, like trying to figure it out. In terms of financials, are local musicians seeing less coming in from their songs and albums and now more coming from live gigs? Is that how the industry has shifted as well? Yeah, for sure. Now, not every musician is a recording artist, right? So there's a lot of musicians that may not ever have had that revenue stream to rely on. So there's still that group of individual or groups of musicians that just rely on live gigs. And I I just want to say this, some fantastic musicians who have never become recording artists. So to me, it's not because one is better than the other. It's just sort of the journey that you take as a musician. And for a lot of them, the live performing, that's their bread and butter. That's just what they do. It's what they love. When Naleo first started, I know you guys won brown bags like in 84. Yeah, Yeah, 84. Were there more opportunities for musicians back then to do coffee houses or restaurants or down in Waikiki? Was there more of those types of opportunities then? Absolutely. I think so. There were more opportunities for live music. There were more opportunities for 
recorded music, whether you were able to sign with a big label or whether you just wanted to be like your own record label at the time in the 80s and 90s, like local musicians were just figuring out how to be an independent artist. And uh, that, I think, exploded the music scene here. And what I like to share with people, because most people, if you're not in the industry, you don't think about it. But if you're just a consumer of music, what that did was it made it possible for lots of bands to make lots of music, you know? And the consumer is the one that wins because people who love music, when you think about it, the bands that came out of Hawaii in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, there were hundreds and hundreds of albums recorded and released every year. And Hawaii had, we had our place on the map, you know? You know, we were known as a regional hub just like grunge in Seattle and country in Nashville and Broadway in New York. Hawaii had our own thing going, and it was a beautiful time. And when you look at the musicians that are coming out of Hawaii today, how do you feel about opportunities for them? I mean, when we look especially at, like, Iam Tongi being this huge winner on American Idol, the like national stages and worldwide opportunities, do those give you some hope that more Hawaii musicians will be able to participate and have careers in the industry? Yeah, but, you know, careers can vary, right? Mm. So look at, like, Bruno Mars, right, local guy. He pretty much performed as, like, a street performer, and then with his family and shows, he had to go and sign a major deal, right, to yeah. become, like, a full-time, that's his life, and to be really, like, successful at it. I would love to see that happen for Iam Tongi too, right? But how many of our artists can really take that next step and bridge that and and do it nationally or internationally? The way I see it, the ones that can, awesome, go for it. They represent Hawaii, but not many can. And the ones that want to still be a viable musician and do it as their career have to figure out how to do it without those opportunities. Yeah. And and that's really my passion. We had brown bags that helped to launch us, that helped to put us on a, a certain stage that we could then utilize and, and grow our career. But today, it's not like a one way to do it. You know, musicians are very resilient, very smart, and they figure out how to do it. They're scrappy. I do want to get to make music day because it's opportunity, right? It's more opportunity for more music, for more musicians to get their name out there and to have this experience. So June 21st is make music day. And you are part of an event here in Hawaii that is encouraging every kind of musician, young and old, amateur and professional of every musical persuasion to share their music. Can you talk more about the event? It's my passion project. Make Music Day is celebrated in over a 1,000 cities and 120 countries around the world and has been for over 40 years. It started in France. I found out about it during COVID, and I said, wow, what a great way to support Hawaii's musicians and to have more live music playing. And it's, you know, all kind people, all kind music, all kind places. And for me as a musician, that's like, oh, that's my perfect day, Mm -hmm. right? Imagine strolling around, somebody's playing on a sidewalk, somebody's in a cafe, you're on the beach, somebody's jamming under a tree, big concert at night at, you know, our beautiful venue. So the idea for Make Music came to me. I applied to be a part of the National Alliance. So there's over 120 cities Mm -hmm. in the United States that have chapters, and now Hawaii has a chapter. And it's just a way to elevate the musicians, give them a chance to perform. All the events are free, by the way. So the idea is that if we can connect venues who support music with artists who want to make music, maybe on that day the artist is playing for free. But what we found is that they make connections. And the venues go, hey, you're pretty good. Maybe we should have more live music here. And they've come back and told us that they've had opportunities to gig more. They've made connections with other artists. And even some of our local artists here have been able to participate in some of the national programs with Make Music Day to where composers get matched with other composers, producers get matched with other producers. I mean, it's it's amazing, all the opportunities. And, and I think Hawaii is just representing us and our people in an amazing way. It's pretty cool to think about one day where people all across the world are making music 
is that kind of how it'll be just continuous music making from the start of the day, you know, across the world and wrapping up with us here on on this side of the timeline? (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's going to be music everywhere. This year we've gone statewide and we'll have events on Kauai. We have events on the Big Island. So from the north to the south, Hawaii is definitely joining the the global celebration. Mm -hmm. So I really want to encourage all of your listeners to go to our website, makemusichawaii.org. Check it out. Everybody is welcome. I'd love them to join us. If not, check out our map. All the events, like I said, are free. And your listeners can go and find a place to enjoy music. And in that way, they are supporting the music makers because they have an audience to play to. Nalani Jenkins, thank you so much for coming into the station today. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. And that was noted local musician Nalani Jenkins talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about the upcoming Make Music Day on Wednesday, June 21st. Jenkins will be performing with Henry Capono at Tamarin Park from noon to 1 as part of several events scheduled around the state on that day. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering virtual classes including art, film, history, and gardening with start dates through June 30th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mark Cafe, we'll catch up with the Pacific Center for Entrepreneurship and RISE. We'll hear how RISE, or Residence for Innovative Student Entrepreneurs, is ready to launch and how this community can spark new startups. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Mark's Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island, presenting the musical Rent, about a group of friends and struggling artists chasing their dreams, June 24th and 25th. Tickets at kahilutheater.org. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. On this week's Manu Minute, we learn about the yellow-fronted canary. Recordings, thanks to the Makole Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. Yellow-fronted canaries are native to sub-Saharan Africa and were intentionally introduced in the mid-1960s, both on Oahu, near Coco Crater, and Hawaii Island, near Kona. They've since become incredibly common on both those islands, and are found on the other main Hawaiian islands as well. If you live near a town or city and see a small bird that's mostly yellow, with grayish wings and head, but with a bright yellow stripe above its eye, and in particular is spending a lot of time singing, it's most likely a yellow-fronted canary. The well-known common canary is a different species and hasn't become established here except for on Midway Atoll. Yellow-fronted canaries mainly feed on grass seeds, flower buds, and small insects. They often forage in mixed species flocks with other small introduced seed-eating birds, such as the saffron finch. Yellow-fronted canaries are also one of the many non-native bird species that inhabit the lowlands that are resistant to mosquito-transmitted diseases like avian malaria that are preventing our native bird species from living in these areas. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society. For more than eight decades, fostering community values that work to protect Hawaii's native wildlife and ecosystems. Learn more about membership and other ways to help at hiaudubon.org. Seeks, 
It's short for School Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, spelled S-E-E-Q-S. The Charter School is celebrating its 10th anniversary and its innovative approach to nurturing students to be stewards of the earth. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked to Buffy Cushman-Pates, SEEK's executive director, about the school's mission and vision for the future. Why did you decide to start a middle school? Mm -hmm. Middle school being the keywords there. I'll I'll answer school in general, but middle school, I'll start with that because, well, the truth is I love middle school students. 11 is my favorite age, and I I was a middle and high school teacher myself, and I really enjoyed actually watching students develop from middle school through high school, and so much change happens in that time. But I really think that middle school is that moment where students have basically the opportunity to either love things or hate things. There's so much shift that happens during that time. And so educators can play such an important role in their lives in helping them love things and helping them be super engaged and involved and helping them, A, learn a lot about the world around them, but B, also realize the importance that they have and how much ownership and advocacy they can have for their own lives. I think middle schoolers are generally underestimated for how much capacity they have and how much they can do. And at our school, we really, really uh, celebrate the awesomeness of middle school. (laughs) So I'd say that's why middle school, because frankly, is my favorite age to educate, but also just to be around. What did you think was lacking from a standard middle school experience that you wanted to address at SEEKS in terms of curriculum, culture, et cetera? I'll answer that about school in general, because SEEKS is designed to be a 6th through 12th grade school. What was missing? Several things. First, most secondary schools are really siloed. You learn English, separate from math, separate from science, separate from social studies, which is funny because the real world is not siloed. In the real world, we're using our English language arts skills. We're using our thinking about the arts. We're using our scientific observation skills. We're using historical perspective in so many and practically everything we do. And so in the schools that I taught in and, frankly, every school that I know of, Those silos didn't allow students the opportunity to see the connections between all the different subjects. And my colleagues and I, where I was teaching at the time, we just envisioned and fantasized about what if we could teach an interdisciplinary class where we could help students see the connection, for example, between science and history. And of course, another piece for me is that I'm a geologist by training. As a geologist, you learn a whole lot about environmentalism, you know, to put it (laughs) super simply. That's really, there's not a lot of opportunity for bringing these real world pieces into a more traditional siloed school setting. So that's one piece, the silos. The other piece is that most schools don't have a lot of opportunities for students and adults to interact in these just super real ways that aren't around content, but are just around like being in the world. The best interactions for me when I was a teacher came in the in the moments between classes, in the 10 minutes between classes when the kids would say, what did you do this weekend? And I would say the same for them when we would talk and they'd say, oh, my God, you played in an ultimate Frisbee tournament. What? That's crazy. I was like, yeah, you want to hear about it? And we just were whole people together. And I think most schools don't design the opportunities for students and adults to be real whole people together. So designed that into SEEKS. There is time built in for students and adults to spend quality time together in what we call our advisory structures. It's Mondays and Fridays, 45 minutes, where students and adults are learning together, playing together, connecting. I noticed that there were a few interesting things about SEEKS when I researched. One was the town hall, Mm -hmm. and another was your start time. Town hall is an opportunity for students to have a voice in what happens in their school. I think so often students think that adults are scheming against them and making this set of rules and structures. And, you know, to some degree we are because we're responsible for their safety. But in town hall, a student or an adult can bring up an idea for something that they'd like to see changed in the school. And then we have a discussion about it in this forum. It's anyone from anyone can attend. They don't have to attend. They have a study hall as an option. And they have this discussion back and forth of speaking for the motion, speaking against the motion. And then we take a vote. It takes two thirds of majority of the people present. 
students and adults having an equal voice in order to pass a motion. Now, administration has veto power, like sort of the executive branch, if we need it. For example, if students or if somebody wanted to propose a motion that was counter to our contract or something like that. Recently, students and a teacher together put together a motion to allow gum chewing in school. We had a civilized debate about the pros and cons of it, and we enacted a trial period to find out if students could chew gum and be responsible for them, and they did. And so that trial got extended, and now that is the new rule in our school, that students are allowed to chew gum because they made the case for, for why and how they could be responsible about it. Wow, and that was one of the examples where admin wasn't necessarily for it, but because the, but because we want to honor the system and let students truly have ownership, and, and, and they made the case for it, and then they proved it. And what about your start time? Oh, start time. There's tons of research that says that teenagers actually have a shift in their sleep patterns, and they sleep later in the mornings, and they go to sleep later at night. And so it's really based on research about what's best for kids' brains. So this later start time was designed for both the middle and high school. Some middle schoolers show up with sort of little kid brains still, and they have a lot of energy in the morning. Our school day starts at 8.30 most days, but we start our day with advisory or physical activity. So there's play first thing in the morning. And so what that does is for the kids that come with a lot of energy, it gives them an opportunity to burn off that energy and really connect with people before moving into academic content that starts at 9.20. For the kids that show up to school super sleepy, then that 8.30 start time and play first thing helps them wake up. So it serves both purposes, but that later start time is, is really just aligned with what research says about how kids' brains work. Tell me a little bit about your portfolio system as well as your questions, which look to me as a attempt to have students embrace critical thinking. Absolutely. So I'll start with the portfolio defense system. The vision of our school is that seekers will be, seekers are what we call our students, seekers will be stewards of planet Earth and healthy, effective citizens of the world. And our sort of theory of action is that in order to be a steward of planet Earth and healthy, effective citizen, you need to be proficient in what we refer to as our sustainability skills. The portfolio defense process is what students do at the end of eighth grade. They defend their readiness to move on to high school by reflecting on and sort of defending their understanding of each of those sustainability skills with exemplars from project work they've done during their time at SEEKS from both the content courses and then our project-based course called EQS that I can tell you more about. So they're reflecting on their ability to think systemically and communicate powerfully, collaborate productively, reason analytically, and manage effectively. Now, as eighth graders, we're not expecting them to be proficient in all of those skills. Frankly, there's plenty of adults that aren't proficient in all of those skills. But our expectation is by the end of eighth grade, they've developed an understanding of those skills and can reflect on their growth in them. And then as soon as we build out high school in 10th grade, they'll have to defend their proficiency in two of those skills with evidence from exemplars of their work. And in 12th grade, they'll have to defend their proficiency in all five of those skills to move on from high school. Tell me about EQS. So EQS is the course that gives our school its name. You know, our students take English, math, social studies, science. But at the end of the day, four days a week, they take an interdisciplinary course built around an examining essential question of sustainability. Topics might include responsible tourism or invasive and native species, those types of things. And uh, it's a whole semester-long course where students go on field trips, engage with community experts, and deeply examine the complex issues of sustainability. In those courses, they're assessed on things like English and math standards, but also sustainability standards. So education for sustainability standards. So we really we guarantee students have meaningful learning experiences in those EQS courses. That's great. And what have you found in terms of meeting the benchmarks as set forward by the state and nation? Standardized tests are ultimately designed not so much not to measure individual students, but really to serve as a basis for understanding schools relative to each other and as an equity bar, really, to make sure that all students are getting access to well, the standards that someone has determined all students have access to, whether those are the right standards is a different question for a different conversation. But we think of those standardized tests as sort of the like, I'm going to use my hands here, but portfolio defenses and, and deep understanding of the sustainability skills is, is high at, at my eye level or above my eye level. And standardized tests is somewhere around my chin in terms of 
what's the goal that we're trying to achieve. So if we're aiming for way up here by my head, we've, well, of course, we're going to get to the chin level. So historically, Sikh students have done well on standardized tests. We just kind of look at how do we do relative to the state average. We looked at our test scores from this past year, and on average, our students perform 15 to 29 points higher than the state average on math, science, and English. So we feel just fine about those state tests, and we say, okay, well, let's shoot for the portfolio defense system as our true measure of what we're, we're trying to achieve. Students who are prepared to be stewards of planet Earth and healthy, effective citizens of the world. That's what matters to us. Great. Tell me, you're on, this is the 10th anniversary, so what really have been a few lessons that you've taken from the past 10 years that you're going to try to address moving forward, and where do you think you're going to be? When? In the next 10 years. Mm. So I'm going to picture in 10 years from now, when I'm having this conversation with you about our 20-year anniversary, we will have graduated a half dozen classes of seniors from Seeks High School, and we will have a permanent home that is our forever home where 6th through 12th grade students are thriving. We have students who are in industries throughout the state, and they're bringing this perspective of sustainability deep understanding of complex issues of sustainability into every realm and every field. We're already seeing little bits of that. In 20 years, we'll have seekers that are all over the state in meaningful roles in various professions and bringing the complex lines of sustainability into what they do. Seekers, I like that. That was Buffy Cushman-Pates, Executive Director of the Sikhs Charter School, talking to HPR's Stephanie Hahn about its unique approach to learning as the school marks its 10th anniversary. Well, it's almost noon and we're out of time, but up tomorrow we highlight a program to grow our pool of Pacific Island doctors. Got a story idea for us? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.